This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Now we'd like to welcome you to Bite Into It. We're talking computers, we're talking technology, and this week we're joined by Joe. Hello. Zan. Hello. And I'm Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. We've got an exciting chat ahead this evening. Uh, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Monica Barrett all about changes in drug crypto markets. It's a bit of an exciting space and it changes so much that um, it's uh, it's hard to keep track of what's going on there. So we'll have an expert to get us up to speed. But before we get to that, it's time to talk about some of the news going on this week. And one thing that caught my eye was um, that digital tech... Uh, is growing in the agricultural sector, which is massive for Australia. And um, there's a plan to develop a $100 billion agricultural industry by 2030, and of which agricultural technology will be a big part of it, according to a new report by Startup Australia. So the report's titled Powering Growth, Realising the Potential of Ag Tech for Australia. Ag Tech, what do you think of that? I'm not sure that's the catchiest expression. But given given what the options are, I feel like it's not not <laughs> bad. It's just not great. Yeah, it's yeah. All right, it's okay. So they are they're saying that providing producers with the tools and information to make more informed decisions and improve productivity and sustainability will be big parts of the changes in this sector. Now, there are key components for the sector to explore for it to reach its full potential, capital, connectivity and direction. And they've made 12 recommendations in total. Um, if you're out chatting to some farmers, uh, don't think that, you know, they're, they're Luddites or that they're out in a disconnected world. They're actually right in the heart of things at the moment. And it's kind of exciting. It'd be interesting to see, you know, what sort of sensors they're using out in the ground and, um, you know, whether drones starting to play a part, how it's impacting the markets and the information that they have. Uh, about weather and, you know, all the climate side of things. It's kind of exciting. Um, also, agriculture is a key driver of Australian exports. So that's um, a sort of valuable opportunity for Australians. So that's that's kind of a cool report. It was uh, co-authored by KPMG and supported by the Queensland Government and the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. So um, there's a lot of different fingerprints on that one. But, yeah, do look out for the Ag Tech Report Powering Growth. What else is going on in news this week, Sam? Um, recently, um, I believe it was yesterday, um, Western Digital um, demonstrated the prototype of the world's first terabyte SD card. Nice. And it's like... That's just so much storage, um, you know, in a tiny little thing. So uh, I suspect they will be largely used in photography and videography. Um, but it's crazy how small, you know, storage is getting. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. And about time we were able to access those sort of storage levels in uh those tiny cards for our cameras that'll mm. be great i wonder if it'll encourage bad habits that people you know won't switch cards as much as possible i suspect and, so yeah. but um perhaps at this point it'll probably be like transfer speeds that um might be holding it back but mm. um obviously there's just the prototype and we'll probably see more in the coming year mm. oh that's great look something i always love to see is uh advancements in the world of robotics. Mm. So there's a company called Ghost Robotics and they've released what they call the Minotaur Quadruped. What's great about this is it can deal with stairs, it can open doors with, you know, and actually handle the handles oh. and climb fences if you imagine cyclone fencing. Uh, this robot can can climb over those things 
Now, like many robots that, that move in new ways, it can be a little bit freaky to watch at first. Uncanny Valley territory. Yeah, but it's not quite as creepy as the one that looked like a horse, like with two back legs facing each other a while back. It's not like that. It's actually got some cuteness to it. It's pretty squat. And um, they've said by, by removing a lot of mechanised gears and using, you know, lots of springs and, and kind of controlling the, the springability, the flexibility of this robot, building flex in, um, that's how they've kind of saved on size. So rather than having to build things that can reach really far, it's actually bouncing around the place in quite an adorable way. I kind of preferred it when Daleks couldn't get downstairs. <laughs> um yeah, well, you know, <laughs> let's just make sure that we program these things and keep them on our side. Yeah, Asimov's laws. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's it's got, you know, every time you see these sort of things, you immediately start thinking, oh, gosh, has this got a, a dire military purpose? Mm. Um, but I think there's also great potential for helping people and particularly yeah. differently abled people, um, particularly because this is quite a small light robot um, so, you know, it's a bit more efficient in how it's using power. It's using uh, direct drive electric motors for a lot of the power. And um, it's also using uh, a lot of sensing. So you can watch videos online, not just about how this robot can move, but also what it what it sees, say, as it's climbing a fence and how it's interpreting that data. Um, it's quite impressive. Uh, I don't know if... We'll see things like this soon. They're, they're championing this saying that it's quite a cheap mm. robot. And well, when they say cheap, they mean $10,000 worth of cheap. Yeah, cheap cheap for its category. Yeah, that's right. But that's pretty exciting. Um, it's all been written up in the IEEE Spectrum magazine, which is kind of cool. Sam, what do you think? Did you did you like the look of this one? I think it is cute. Like, I, I definitely... Like, don't, don't, you know, put a face on it or anything. Um... <laughs> And keep it the way it is, and I, I think it is quite um, adorable. I'm anxious. To, uh, I, I didn't get a chance to see it in motion. Um, so, given that like it's really spring loaded, like that brings a lot of life to something that's you know quite um, you know robotic in nature. But I'm anxious to see um, you know w- what it can do in the field. Essentially, like um, what people might be able to use this for. Like as you mentioned, it can open doors for like people who are um, not quite um, able to and that sort of thing and it can climb fences so perhaps it will have a use in farming if we want to go back there. It actually really reminded me of a cattle dog Mm. with the the cleverness and giving the impression of being an alive thing as it it moved around and bounded down and upstairs and and over fences and things. So... um, in addition to being actuators and springs, the leg motors are also sensors, so they're getting sensor feedback from what they're touching. Oh. And that's something really clever, I thought. Um, they they did take a lot of inspiration from watching animals, so you're right on point there, Sam. Mm. Um, they looked at different sorts of terrain, and rather than creating, when say with the, the mechanical, you know, the self-driving car problem where people think about, all right, we're going to have particular types of roads so that the cars can cope with them quite easily they've taken the opposite approach of just going terrain is unpredictable how can we make a really flexible um robot yeah that's kind of cool and yeah it's kind of going back to nature's way of like you know being able to rebound using the the springs Mm. they're saying that um compared to some other uh, dynamically legged robots like mit's cheetah which is also worth looking up that um it's a little bit different. Like they've got really different gearbox structures. Um, 
they they suggest that their their robot is a bit more robust because it has less parts that need to be monitored to make sure it doesn't break and that it's easier to um, scale it up, ma- you know, mass scale it because it's a five kilogram robot instead of a 30 kilogram robot. And that you can really see that when you're watching them move, I think, yeah. Um, and uh, so I think next up we have two Google-related stories. Mm. So um, earlier today, Google announced that they would be introducing um, natural language processing to their Google Drive search. So, for example, you can search phrases phrases like um, find a particular document from, you know, last December, um, and it will help you search that. And um, you can obviously use um, voice to, to search your Google Drive now, so that's really exciting. And... Um, that yeah. would be so useful, especially now Google Drive is really moving into mm. offices. Yeah. Um, and it just makes it, you know, the whole thing a, a lot more convenient. And it's making Google Drive a lot more sort of in line with what we think of Google traditionally. Um, so it, it's definitely a step forward and that will be rolling out um, starting today to um, all users worldwide. Mm, interesting. I'm looking forward to trying that because in the past we've always had to think like a computer to, to find things that we've archived. Yeah, instead definitely. of thinking, mm, it was definitely within the last six months. Yeah, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes you end up searching things that are like the contents of a document rather yeah. than the content, like uh, the its title. Mm. And then th- those titles are always difficult to remember. When we talk about um, the use of electronic devices, the amount of face time with these things possibly having effects on our short- short-term memory mm. and, and the way that we search and think changing because we're almost programming ourselves to deal with things like Google. I wonder if this is going to rein that back in and have us actually thinking more naturally and might be part of the coping mechanism there. Yeah. It'll be 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 interesting to see see, um, like how... um you know, how, how solid and robust this system is um, and where it sort of breaks and where its shortcomings are. Mm. So in the more fun side of Google, rather than the, the pragmatic <laughs> search side, Google have unveiled a smartphone app that helps you plan your vacations. It's called Trips and um, it'll help you move around in cities. And what it's trying to do is be a little bit clever about not just giving you an aggregate of, of maybe maps and tourist destinations, but actually using a similar concept to what you've described in that search and natural language sort of approach, Mm. letting you say, I've got eight hours in this place and helping you map your way around, like how far could you move around in a city on foot in eight hours and figure out that sort of thing. That's It's got great potential. It's um, the economics of, um, you know, going on a trip and having X amount of time to do yeah. as much as possible. Yeah, so uh, it takes the premise that you probably have a couple of places you want to visit in mind. Joe, is there some city in the world that you're really keen to go explore? I really want to go back to Reykjavik. Oh, right. And Iceland in general. So maybe if you were in Reykjavik and you started using the Google Trips tool, you might have something in mind like the Opera House. I'm going to visit that. And uh, I think it's the Opera House that I've seen that they've got photos of that's beautiful. I've never been there. And what's another area that might be a, a big tourist destination? Oh, the big cathedral. Great. So maybe you could whack in the Opera House and the big cathedral and it would say in between those things, here's some other things that you could visit given that you have eight hours here. Maybe you want to fill that out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like fill that out with, you know, lunch and, you know, maybe yeah. a place to have a, you know, a morning coffee, that sort of thing. And you have like a really nice day laid out in front of you. I don't know whether I love or hate this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I love that they're thinking that way and that they can do it and it's very efficient. 
uh, as usual, there's always that serendipity cost. And yeah. Does it allow you to input your itineraries and flights and things like that, like TripIt does? I'm not sure because I haven't tried it yet myself. And um, the articles I've seen are a little bit getting swept up in the the visionary potential of this rather than actually reviewing the pragmatics so it'll be interesting to see but they're talking about how it's using neural networks um which is really you know a type of a type of uh, linear algebra so the same sort of maths that you might use to solve a problem like how can i move in between these different suburbs only crossing these different paths or, you know, how do I travel between these train stations? Um, they use the example of being in Stockholm and how how can I take a path that crosses all these sort of bridges in between these different islands? And they say, well, that'll only work with an even number of bridges, for example. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool to see that sort of maths really pragmatically at play behind something that seems so clever. And the processing power behind it just makes it really easy, mm. much easier than it would be for our brains to, to kind of put that together. I guess serendipity, you know, we can always turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. That's it. Uh, now we would love to welcome to the studio virtually Dr. Monica Barrett. She is a research fellow at the Drug Policy Modelling Program at the University of New South Wales. Her work focuses on how drug use and drug markets are changing in our increasingly digitised societies. And she's recently co-edited a special issue about drug, about drug crypto markets uh, which are online drug markets located in the hidden web. Welcome, Monica. Thanks, Vanessa, and hi, uh, Joe and Sam and everyone on uh, on the program. It's uh, it's lovely to be speaking to you again. It's been um, at least a year since we've spoken, and a lot has changed. So in the past, we've spoken to you about Silk Road, and uh, Silk Road's no longer. So I wonder mm. if you could give our listeners who aren't that familiar with what Silk Road was just a little bit of a... Uh, a quick wrap-up. Mm, sure. So about five years ago, uh, Silk Road was uh, launched and I certainly found out about it in June 2011 uh, and basically it looked like an eBay for drugs and I was quite surprised that, that it could possibly be the case that you could go onto this site, um, buy an illegal drug and get it sent to your house and pay for it in Bitcoin, which to me was totally new at the time. So... Um, so Silk Road uh, had about a two-and-a-half-year period where it was, was operating and growing, uh, and then it was taken down by the FBI in, in 2013. So, so that sort of... Um, really what that precipitated was a, a large number of other similar sites uh, came onto the market. So it certainly wasn't the case that, that the FBI takedown stopped everything. In fact, it, it, it continued, but it spread out amongst a number of other markets uh, 2014, there was another operation that took down uh, markets across the world, Operation Onimus, in November of 2014. Uh, but again, uh, a whole heap more popped up. So, so we've had a lot more flux, I guess, in the last year. Um, some marketplaces that uh, continued on in, in, in the light of Silk Road, uh, some of these marketplaces actually ended up um, not being taken down by law enforcement, but actually the, the owners of the markets decided that that you know that now is a good time to leave and take all the cash mm. and so-called the exit scam uh and, and so that it, it's sort of been uh, on the one hand it's been through scams on the other hand it's been through law enforcement that these markets have um have been uh, taken down but you know eventually another market comes up and uh there's been probably a relative 
a relative few months of stability in a way. There hasn't been a major event that's really shocked the um, the darknet market or crypto market ecosystem of late, but that doesn't mean that there isn't one just around the corner. Mm. So this might be something that um, people aren't too aware of at home or are vaguely aware of, um, like, but uh, don't really know the ins and out of, outs of it. Um, you mentioned that there, uh, these sites are not dissimilar to sites like Amazon or eBay. Like, what's the mm. barrier of entry to somebody u- utilizing one of these crypto markets? Yeah, so the first difference is that they're located in hidden web or, or for Tor hidden services uh, mainly. Uh, so you actually do have to go through through that. Uh, you know, the Tor you can go to the Tor project and download Tor for free. It's open source, but it does involve a little bit more, I guess, some um, tech savviness than just sort of going to your usual browser. And then the second thing, of course, is you have to get hold of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or some of the other ones. So, so those two things. Uh, you know that it means that there has to be a certain level of um, of expertise. Having said that, there's a lot of online guides uh, that people can follow. Um, but you know what we found in, in in looking at the the most recent research is that although it might appear relatively easy to get on or to maybe make a first purchase, there's a lot of nuance in how uh, both the vendors and the buyers uh, reduce their risk as they as they move forward in, in, in this practice. So, you know, if you just come on and, and buy, you may not have a real sense of how to work out how not to get scammed, how to how to work out sort of better practices like how to encrypt your your um, your communications, that kind of thing. So there's certainly levels of expertise, I guess, that are involved in, in using the markets. So, Monica, can you tell me a little bit about what you and some of your colleagues researching drug crypto markets are interested in in achieving um, when sure. you do research in your sector? I mean, the first thing I wanted to, to do was a, a little shout-out to Judith Aldridge, who's my um, my co, co-editor for the special issue, and mm. she's actually listening in in Manchester, UK at the moment. So I have to thank Judith for all the work that she's put in. Uh, but really, in, in getting together this special issue, um, we ended up publishing 12 papers, and, and it's sort of, you know, there's been a few questions that have really been of interest to us. So when we've got the online drug markets and crypto markets... Are they actually selling drugs that are of better quality? Are those drugs more likely to be pure, for example? And, and also, um, how do they compare in terms of price? And all this we, we have to sort of work out, you know, are we comparing the drugs you can buy on the crypto markets to so drugs you can buy on a traditional uh, face-to-face basis uh, in particular countries? And so we published a couple of papers in the in the special issue in relation to some of this stuff. Uh, one of the papers was actually from a Spanish group called Energy Control, uh, and this is a, a group that does drug testing for for users of a testing service. Uh, and they invited people who were using darknet markets to buy drugs to actually send those drugs to them for testing. Uh, and. The majority of the samples sent to energy control were for cocaine and they did find that these were higher in purity and less likely to be cut with other things than you would have expected uh, given what we know from, say, police seizures and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but it's certainly not the case that all of the drugs sold on the crypto markets are as they say there are. There are 
definitely been um, instances where they've been found to be adulterated. Um, for example, some have been found to contain some of the synthetic fentanyls um, that we've been hearing about a lot lately um, disguised in better-known opiate products. So, mm. so this is a real concern um, in drug markets more generally as well as in the dark net. So you're working in an area that is really, it's got massive public health um, implications uh, but what's interesting is that technology has intervened in the the way that people access these markets now to the extent that you know your your general um, drug researchers you know need a really high level of, of technical knowledge to to be researching in this sector has there been much interest um, from government uh, sort of health policy type of people mm-hmm. in the sorts of research that you and your colleagues uh, are doing yeah, look, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the work that, that we're doing and I think um, in terms of trying to understand how how markets are changing in, in this increasingly digitised world that we live in, uh, you know, how is the disruptive potential of technology affecting this area? Because, you know, if we look across so many other areas, just more generally, e-commerce more generally, I mean, if we just look at most goods... Uh, these days, you know, the internet has dramatically affected the way that we find out about goods mm. um, and services, how we buy them as well. And really, in a way, it, it's as if the illicit drug markets are sort of just catching up with that. Uh, they're taking on a number of the things that have been available for, say, you know, buying clothes or buy, working out what car to buy or, or, or working out, you know, what service is the best. Um, now you've got sort of vendors that get ratings for, you know, their customer service and, and the, um, their products and how, how well those products are, um, even how well they are packaged and that kind of thing, as well as their communication. I mean, it's almost, you know, I, I use you know, Airbnb and all these kinds of other other sort of um, services and, you know, you're rating people on their communication and how mm. um, how they greet you when they first arrive. You know, it's a similar thing, but just with different uh, different things that you're rating. And the the rating, the, the capacity to actually aggregate those, those ratings out of five is incredibly important for the vendors on these markets because they can then... They can make a case that look, I'm actually a really highly rated vendor. I've had a, I've had all this feedback, and so you know you should choose me out of all of the others. And that's something that if you try and envisage that happening um, in a normal, I guess what would have been a traditional uh, situation for drug supply, you know people don't have uh, 20 different suppliers with aggregations available that they can. <laughs> you know, sift through. <laughs> so, you know, you can do a little, little bit of that by word of mouth. We imagine they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, this it, it, it would happen through word of mouth, for mm. sure. Mm. It's just not going to happen at the scale. And, and you can imagine this is sort of what's happened with, with everything, really. Um, this is sort of just catching up to it. So I think the, the technologies of, you know, encryption, uh, the hidden web and, and cryptocurrencies have really... I guess that the synergy of those technologies has has facilitated this kind of uh, this kind of change. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously, uh, one of the aspects for um, like one of the things that crypto markets does really well is attempts to keep um, the vendors and the the buyers um, as anonymous as possible. But do we have any mm. idea um, to what 
um, you know, expanses these sort of like businesses are sort of working in? Like how many people are involved in, in each individual one or is it completely, mm. are we completely blind on that front? Yeah, that's really difficult to find out. I mean, actually, some of some of Judith's work uh, recently, uh, uh, looking at the the actual listings, the, the content of some of the listings, uh, and you know, I've also noticed this as well. Some of them use we, and they talk about the team. <laughs> now, of course, that could just be a way of big noting oneself. You know, this is one guy, but he's talking we and the team. Or it could indeed be that there are teams. Uh, of multiple people groups that are working together behind particular accounts. Uh, so, so I think it is, it's an area where, you know, we can't just trust that that we or team language does indeed, you know, represent that. Uh, yeah, in terms of the numbers, um, one of the things you can do, uh, and, and a lot of my colleagues, uh, do this where they, where they scrape the data sets, uh, they get the data sets from the markets. So once you scrape that data, you can then look at the entire ecosystem of crypto markets and say, well, you know, how many vendors are there with unique usernames? Um, how many, uh, well, you can look at the number of listings um, and you can sort of see uh, what the weight is of particular listings and you can code them by, you know, their, their drug type. So this sort of information obviously is, is entirely unavailable for our usual uh, dealers on the ground mm. it's not possible to do this kind of monitoring and so so there's a real opportunity there to to sort of get a sense of the scale at least within the crypto market space of what drugs are most popular what drugs are being sold at really large quantities or really small quantities and pricings between countries all these sorts of information that is really difficult to get otherwise and through that kind of analyses you know we can see that it basically mirrors what we would expect mm -hmm. cannabis ecstasy cocaine uh you know lsd maybe fourth or fifth and then you get a lot of different psychedelic drugs coming in as well as pharmaceutical drugs with sort of heroin and methamphetamine a little bit further down the line it, it, it's essentially what you would expect if you had a look at prevalence of use of drugs in in most of the societies um that we know of so that that's an interesting thing and, and we want to look more more fine-grained at that to get a sense of whether we can you know, basically use these markets to predict in a way what new drugs are coming onto onto the market, um, into, onto the sort of broader markets. So, Monica, I was reading the article that you wrote for The Conversation, which was an explainer yeah. about what are drug crypto markets, and I was pretty curious to see that pharmaceuticals made up a part of this. We're yeah. pretty used to hearing discussions right. about disruption in in regular business markets but the fact that pharmaceuticals were showing up here it made me think there's lots of places in the world where it's really difficult to get certain types of pharmaceuticals i wondered is there any information that you know any of the researchers you've come across are doing about you know um how these crypto markets might be disrupting the delivery of just regular medicines to places in the world mm, mm. Yeah, uh, um, I mean, I, I think what we what we know is that there's there is definitely places in the world where it's difficult to, through usual channels, access some of these drugs, even for a bona fide medical reason. But we also know that there are a number of different pharmaceutical drugs that are used non medically or extra medically anyway. Mm -hmm. So these are sort of 
benzodiazepines or sedatives, people might like to use those, um, even if it's not really medically necessary, and the same with prescription opioid drugs. So, so these are, you know, that, that sort of area is probably the most uh, prevalent in terms of the pharmaceuticals on offer, as well as uh, pharmaceutical stimulants, they're there as well. Mm. Things like modafinil as well, so some drugs that are used to, to sort of enhance performance are available. There's also... Uh, uh, there's performance enhancing drugs right. uh, available yeah. like around um, um, uh, you know, I don't think it's a huge part of the markets uh, there's also some cancer anti-cancer drugs yeah that was more the sort of thing yeah, I was thinking about when you yeah. when you when you see Dallas Buyers Club or when you when you read World Health Organization reports about the difficulty of getting AIDS medications to parts of the world mm-hmm. um, sometimes there's you know hormone management medicines that can be quite politically controlled in different countries yep. it's you start thinking about the politis the politicization of, of medicine and um, yeah, yeah look but look, it doesn't sound like you're something. seeing a lot of that yeah, look, it seems like that, that almost there's a really large, I mean, hundreds of different pharmaceuticals that are available. But one of the things that um, Judith and, and um, so Judith Aldridge and DeCurry, um, David Dakari had to use one of the articles in in the um, special issue, uh, they what they did was they estimated the the sales that occurred through looking. Um, so if you look at the number of feedbacks. Uh, that are given and, and if you assume that everybody who gave a feedback on a listing bought that listing and that, that's a basic assumption there mm-hmm. might be a few people that don't give feedbacks so but basically that's good then you can actually then say well this is the estimated revenue that this market is getting from these particular products rather than looking at the number of listings because someone could just buy well there could be a listing and nobody buys it and there could be a listing and a hundred people buy it mm. so if you just look at the number of listings you're kind of not really getting a good sense of of what's going on. So using that kind of method, uh, I'm pretty sure they they found that in the pharmaceuticals, the benzodiazepines and prescription opioids were were sort of the most prevalent rather than some of these other more sort of um, medically indicated drugs. But but that definitely is there. And, And, you know, people coming on to these markets with a particular drug that they want to be able to access that's a pharmaceutical drug for medical reasons, I've definitely seen some cases where that has happened. It's um, 7.37 on Triple R. You're with Bite Into It and we're talking to Dr. Monica Barrett about drug crypto markets online. Just to remind a few listeners who might have just tuned in. Um, so, Monica, when we think about what um, has been disrupted in the case of these markets, uh, would you would you say that um, there's been an element of... Uh, of a change in safety or the perception of safety when people access a market this way? Yeah, look, there's different ways that, um, I guess, safety can change. Uh, One of the things we were interested in 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 the Global Drug Survey report, or the paper that we did for the special issue, we wanted to know whether people had reported uh, incidents of violence associated with different kinds of purchasing of drugs. And we found this relationship where, as you'd expect, uh, if they purchased drugs from an unknown stranger, they were more likely to say that there was some uh, some concerns around or threats of violence. Uh, and then less so if it was a dealer they knew, less so again if it was a friend that they knew, and the least so was from an online source. And, and this is what you would expect. But what was interesting was in... The, in the special issue, we also had a number of other papers talking about the sort of other kinds of 
I guess you could say, digital violence. Um, the, the threats that were coming from from that digital engagement, so things like doxing, you mm. know, reputation damage through through um, the sharing of personal information and threatening exposure, blackmail, theft, fraud, cyberbullying, all these sorts of things. So I think on first glance you can think, well, right, you know, there, there's you, know, you can't you can't end up being sort of assaulted or or, or bashed up or something if you're going to if you're going to buy it online, but there's all these other ways that, that you can actually be exposed uh, through 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 that activity, um, depending on who you are and, mm. and how much you have to risk. And the exit scam, of course, is is, a, is an ongoing concern for people using these marketplaces. So so that that was sort of one, I guess, some one area of, of potential change in harm or safety. But the other I mentioned earlier around around the purity and adulteration. So. You know, the fact that there are vendors being rated uh, and if they were to sell something that was totally not what it was supposed to be and people said, hey, look, this is not right, then they're going to they're gonna rate them low and that's not going to help their business. So there's, there's sort of a mechanism there that should, you would imagine, increase the chances that you get what you pay for and that you don't end up with something totally not what you expect. Uh, so, so, you know, you would imagine that that would be the case. You know, I think it's still, um, you know, I think there still needs to be a bit more research on that, um, especially when the markets are really in flux, for example, if there's a lot of different markets popping up and going down, then there's more chance that, that the vendor ratings are less less stable anyway. So people might just be buying from anyone, you know, not really looking at the vendor ratings, in which case they're probably more likely to be ripped off. Mm. You know, so when so there's sort of contextual differences there. Yeah. So when you um, put out your call for the uh, the International Journal of Drug Policy and your mm-hmm. special issue issue on uh, crypto markets, yeah. uh, did you have any papers submissions that surprised you, like on topics that surprised you, or were there any findings that surprised you? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if there was anything that totally surprised us. I mean. One of the things that we got which was really a little bit different um, was we had a paper that was actually about the the libertarian discourses of uh, within the forums. Yes. So, so yeah, we had... paper was a bit different. Right. We had um, Eileen Ormsby on uh, mm. a while back talking about her yeah. book Silk Road, which is a fantastic read. She's an investigative journalist Absolutely. and she's written this book from an Australian perspective. So... If you want to know more about Silk Road in particular and to understand the dynamic, the online dynamic in, the, in these environments, um, she'd be a great person to read up on. Um, but sorry, Monica, as you were saying. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, obviously, this book is, is a fantastic read. Uh, yeah, and I think she'd have a bit to say about this. So, so really what they were looking for is in the Silk Road era, there was a strong, uh, I guess, a libertarian mission uh, in, incorporated into the discourse of what was going on, this idea that that they wanted to create a, an area where there was only minimal, if no, state intervention in, in what was going on and that you should be able to trade drugs, that's your decision, and, and, and sort of, I guess, almost a world outside of of the world that we do live in, where, where drugs are prohibited, was being created through Silk Road with this kind of vibe. And then when, when Silk Road went down, you know... It changed, and and that was what they tracked in this paper: this sort of sharp decline of of libertarian discussions and discourses, uh, and I guess a replacement with a more um, 
perhaps more profit driven uh, and, and more sort of just trying to trying to get things done in terms of buying and selling drugs mm. and not just moving towards this idea of what does this represent uh, as a disruption to mm. to a broader a political agenda. So, so that was an interesting paper, a little bit different. Yeah, uh, they've moved to rampant <laughs> market capitalisation mode. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, it you know, it affects the, you know, the, what's actually talked about on these markets and, and, and the fact that there was this broader broader discourse um, beforehand and interestingly it doesn't mean that those markets now aren't also achieving the same thing mm-hmm. it just means they're not they're not sort of blatantly talking about it uh, they're still achieving a disruption to state control of drugs and drug sales essentially mm-hmm. well monica it's been fantastic um being updated on what's been happening with crypto markets it's it's a dense area that i haven't personally explored so so it's always great to have a bit of an expert voice on that and uh, we will tweet out a link to your article in the conversation where people can find more is there anywhere else you'd like to direct the listeners to uh, to do more research um, look, I think that link that link has all the links in it that Excellent. you probably need. So Excellent. Um, that's great. And thanks so much um, for having me on the show. Thanks for your time. There's an article that popped up in Wired that just made my week. Uh, it is all about the secret lab where Nike invented the power lacing shoe of our dreams. What is that? Power lacing? What you want to visualize is the magical self-lacing shoe of Back to the Future. Now, do I have fellow Back to the Future fans in studio? Big fan. Great. Yeah. I have never seen it before. I, I've, which is a shame because I swear it was on TV the other week and my brother was watching it and, um, I just didn't sit down and, you know, go on the journey with him. So I feel like I'm missing out. I'd be really curious to see what someone who hadn't seen it until now did think of the conceptualization of the future and the things that made the future futuristic feeling. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like, I, I, I'm watching a, a bit of a, a demo now, and it's basically, you know, the, this shoe that, um, you know, constricts around your feet. So it, so it's, um, you know, loose enough that you can get your foot in, and then it sort of tightens as your feet are inside. It's got sensors. Yeah. But um, I do wonder what it feels like. It looks maybe like how it might feel if you hop in a shoe and then it gets wet and it kind of sucks in around your foot. Surely... Um as a fellow 80s child, you wore Reebok pumps as well, Vanessa? Oh, look, the rich kids could afford the pumps. Um, <laughs> I, had a, I had some knockoffs. <laughs> the the poor kids would just pump up people's pumps too much. <laughs> uh, I imagine, always imagined it felt like that. There was a design flaw is what I'm saying, I think, <laughs> yeah. But let me just try and find um, some of the details about the technology here. They've called this, the technology, the hyper-adapt which is, and it's the HyperAdapt 1.0 because Nike love a 1.0. So they say after 28 years of brainstorming and 11 years of R&D, they've finally come to this HyperAdapt 1.0. So each shoe has a sensor and a battery and a motor and a cable system that adjusts the fit based on an algorithmic pressure equation. And as we go through this piece with Wired, they, um, the journalist does get to test the shoe and does do a bit of a fit review. Like, what does it feel like? Yeah. Ooh, when I was at the end of my, you know, particular types of activities, they say, oh, look, you know, the shoes looked a bit looser, but the fit was still good. Um, so the, the appearance kind of can change over time. It was pretty interesting. Did they fit well enough? For one to be able to hoverboard. <laughs> Look, we're never getting the hoverboard. <laughs> San, 
you don't know about the hoverboard. But no, no, I don't. There's a hoverboard. Okay. In You'll discover this once you reach Back to the Future 2. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to take some commitment on your part. Yes. Homework for you. <laughs> what is curious is, you know, 11 years of R&D, mm. how much have they invested in this project? I wonder where the other models failed in all honesty, because, you know, when you, at the, at the end of the day, when you look at a finished product, you're just like, it all makes sense. Like magic. Yeah. It, yeah. Everything's obviously gone to a point where it functions quite well. So I wonder where, you know, the other models, you know, struggled or if it, you know, just didn't retain its shape very well or after a few runs, it just, you know, couldn't tighten the way they used to. And Maybe. Sp- spending 11 years on something that could be seen as a gimmick and potentially not be adopted widely Mm. is is quite risky as well um well they did uh do a lot of exploration into airbag technology (laughs) and um and they looked at that to put in their sole cushioning sort of features in their Mm. shoes it's really weird to think there's so much technology going into the development of of shoes that that makes sense from from imagining what i was saying before about the reebok pumps as well yeah the air so Really, detecting the presence of a foot was quite a, a challenge for them. And, um, we have foot. <laughs> you know what's also a challenge is my old, old iPad keeping this wide page loaded. It mm. just keeps reloading. Are you getting a, that it's, problem? It's, no, it's a long one. Um, but I, I'm a, a laptop, one. so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna convenient. scoot over to yours because, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to this part of the article that I thought was kind of cool. Um, San, do you want to tell me about, you know, any shoe dreams that you have? Any shoe dreams? Yeah. Not really. I was never a fan of shoes when I was younger, to the point where I would avoid them at like all times in the year. I used to just wear thongs permanently or walk barefoot. Oh, have you ever been to New Zealand? No, I haven't. Not Sounds not, like not a your, good idea. Your dreamland. Oh, really? Yeah, we don't much care for shoes in New Zealand. <laughs> um, but in terms of like other like, do, like do you do? Are you interested in in getting? one of these if they were to like you know were to be released like tomorrow would you consider it i'd be interested in trying them on but i i feel like there might be some sort of foot claustrophobia (laughs) if um if they were to malfunction i I think other other than the shoe itself what i'm most curious about with this is how much the nike process sounds like the software development process. Mm. That's there's, such a good point. Well, there's rigorous prototyping, you know, there's R&D, there's user testing, there's going back to the workshop again. And now that they're using batteries and sensors, they've also got all the, the problems that technology has had for quite a while of miniaturization and trying to like, okay, let's do the same thing, but make it more comfortable. Let's do the same thing and make it smaller. Let's make it lighter. Let's make it more energy efficient. Yeah, we're not going to be able to swap batteries out of sneakers, presumably. But they easily. also keep old models going for for people who prefer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or perhaps yeah. running older versions of their feet. Yeah, like older versions of my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, really... would, would you consider these? Or is it much of the same? You want to try them on and, you know, consider how much, you know, the, the worth is? Look, um, I think I'd take the same approach as to my electric toothbrush. Mm. There's a little bit of a what is the performance benefit versus what is the environmental cost of me using energy for something that didn't require, like, electricity to power before. I am using the electric toothbrush on the advice of my dentist. Yeah. And if I had a podiatrist who said, <laughs> go with the sensor-based shoes, sure. Otherwise, I'd question whether they needed to be powered. Yeah. And if we're not going in the wrong direction based on climate. 
events, San? Yes, starting from the 6th of October, running until the 15th of next year, um, the, the start of next year, rather, um, Acme and Melbourne Festival will present Collisions, which is a virtual reality film which is set to tell an Indigenous story um, by the acclaimed filmmaker and artist Lynette Walworth and basically invites um, you into this world where it tells uh, the story of the land of an Indigenous elder, Nari Nari Morgan. So... Like, it'll be interesting to observe um, his first contact with Western culture in the 1950s in, you know, you know, the world of VR. Love it. Acme's doing some great stuff in that space. Thanks for tuning in this evening. We want to say a big thank you to our guest, Dr. Monica Barrett, talking about crypto markets for drugs. And we'd like to remind you that you've still got a week to pay up for Radiothon and still be eligible for all those prizes. You need to be paid up by the 28th of September by 5pm. So that will be just before you'll next hear from Bite Into It. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground up next with Anthony Carew. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.